This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. It's a fascinating experiment in vaccine passports, and it's about to get underway in the country of Denmark. Businesses like restaurants and movie theaters will require proof of vaccination, a negative test, or a positive test from at least two weeks prior to gain entry. So let's talk about how this is actually going to work with our former CKNW colleague, now freelancing in Denmark, Shane Woodford. Hi, Shane. Hi, Sim. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so tell me, is this is everyone in the EU doing this, or what is Denmark doing? Yeah, Denmark uh, is following a lot of other EU countries, but probably a little bit ahead of most. Uh, the European Union as a whole is uh, authoring its own vaccine passport, which will sort of integrate with the different countries. So there's sort of one unified vision that's going to apply across the European Union, and it's not as simple as you mentioned as just being. Uh, vaccinated or not, uh, in Denmark and in the EU version, uh, it's going to show three levels of information. Uh, your last uh, corona test result, it will show uh, if you've had coronavirus and when, and it will show whether you're vaccinated. So theoretically, if you're going into a restaurant, you can have sort of three ways of doing it. You can say, here I am, I'm fully vaccinated, and you can show uh, this information on your phone, or you can say, listen, I got a uh, coronavirus test done yesterday, and here's the result. It's negative, so in you go. Or you can say, listen, uh, I had uh, COVID uh, about a month ago. Uh, here's that proof of my last positive test, and there's sort of an envelope of weeks around that test that, that basically say, listen, I've got antibodies in my blood, so I have some level of natural immunity, so in you go. So does that mean that everything is open, and that's how they're keeping everything open? No, as of tomorrow, well, there's been sort of a gradual easing of lockdown restrictions. The lockdown was put in place Christmas week, and just over the last few weeks, we're now starting to see some of those uh, restrictions lifted. So beginning tomorrow, Simi, uh, we're taking another step uh, forward in this reopening, The sort of what they call the liberal professions here, so tattoo artists, massage parlors, hairdressers, that kind of stuff. Uh, they'll reopen and they'll require uh, a negative test and, or proof of vaccination and all the things we just discussed in order to go in and get your hair cut. Uh, two weeks from tomorrow, another wave of sort of reopenings or restrictions, easings uh, will take place, and that will just keep on trucking, barring any kind of crazy explosion on the infection side, causing the authorities to bring down the hammer. But over the course of the next two months, we're going to be beginning to see shopping malls reopen, restaurants reopen, movie theaters reopen. The whole thing goes on and on, and they're aiming to have basically um, – you know, adjusted for the Corona passport in this sort of new reality. Uh, other than that, it's going to be sort of quote unquote normal if COVID doesn't throw another curveball our way by the summer. Yeah. What has the third wave been like there? What is the situation with variants in Denmark? Yeah, uh, we have, it's, it's, it's sort of two sides of that story. Number one, uh, the UK variant has spread extremely quickly. We had our first confirmed case, the UK variant about mid November. We went into a pretty strict lockdown, as I said, Christmas week. So the bulk of the UK variant spread has been under a lockdown. And in that time, Simi, it took till about um, the beginning of March. And then it was over 50% of all sequence positive tests. And now it is sitting around, it sort of fluctuates over the last few weeks between 91 to 95% of all positive tests. And keep in mind, Denmark is testing um, we're testing about over 300,000 a day split between PCR and the antigen rapid test. And we have a daily capacity here now of 400,000 
uh, and we're pushing that to 500,000 then to 600,000 in the, in the weeks ahead. And what is the mood like among people? Like I know here, you know, I think we feel a lot of frustration, right? People are so ready for this to be yeah. over. What's it like there? Yeah, there's definitely aspects of frustration. We're starting to see um, more, and again, and this is still a very small amount of people, we're starting to see more demonstrations in the bigger cities against the restrictions and against the lockdown. But overall, the mood uh, is okay because we have managed to get the numbers down and we're now going through a bit of a reopening where people can kind of see, hey, we might have some kind of normality, quote-unquote, uh, here sooner rather than later. Interestingly enough to me, the Prime Minister just recently here in Denmark said that uh, if they can get everybody over the age of 50 vaccinated, that's the benchmark, uh, as soon as that happens, then they're going to reopen everything. It's just going to be life as normal. Okay, so lots to come then, too. Do you expect that with this kind of measure that Denmark is putting into place, do you think you're going to see that in other EU countries? Yeah, absolutely. This is a movement that's going on across the EU. A lot of different countries are working on different variations of a vaccine passport or different ways to, to go about to do that. And, and it's really interesting here to see how much testing has become, um, like as everyday to me is, is going to get groceries. Uh, now, if you go back to work, you've got to get tested twice a week. If you are going, uh, if you're a student in school, uh, secondary school and up, then you've got to get tested twice a week. If you're a teacher, you get tested twice a week. Uh, this past weekend has been a big Easter holiday here in Denmark. Uh, we were looking for things to do. We were looking, oh, maybe we could take Henrik to Legoland. And sure enough, you open that up and it says, okay, you have to have a proof of a negative test, uh, no more than 72 hours old to go to Legoland. Um, it is easy to do. There is almost 600 testing centers split between uh, the rapid test and the PCR test sprinkled across the country. Uh, they say that there's a testing center within 20 kilometers of every home in Denmark now. And they're super fast. You just go, uh, it takes just a few minutes, and then you get a result 24 hours or less. And it's just become part of how we live now. It's, like I said, it's almost like going and getting, filling up the car or going to get the groceries. It's almost as automatic as that now. And, and that's the way it is across the European Union. Certainly is. All right. Well, Shane, thank you. Always a pleasure. Stay safe. Yeah, you too. That is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark and former CKNW reporter. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, the outdoors has become so important to us during the pandemic, right? Everyone decided to head outdoors because we couldn't travel anywhere else and we were tired of being inside of our homes. The result, though, the busiest year on record for search and rescue teams. 79 of them in this province and collectively deployed almost 2,000 times between April of 2020 and April of this year. That's 25% more than the previous year. So how do they cope with all that? Well, joining us now is Mike Danks, North Shore Rescue Team Leader. Mike, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. First off, was this past weekend busy too? It has been busy. We've had four calls so far this weekend, and we anticipate probably quite a few more today. So heading into the pandemic, did, did you think, like, was anybody prepared for what happened, the number of calls that your team started to receive? Yeah, I mean, last year when the restrictions were kind of lifted, it we had a massive influx of calls and since that time we've it, it's really been pretty steady and you know I think as with all the other teams in the province you just have to find a way to adapt and to streamline your services and and make it work and that's what we've been doing. How do you do that? Well it really comes down to being strategic with your response and and trying to limit the number of people that are going in the field and that can be a real challenge, especially in winter conditions. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot of restrictions that are in place for us during winter just because 
you know, we obviously have to make sure our rescuer safety is, is first. And there's some situations where we can't put a lot of people in the field. And because of that, we rely heavily on helicopter operations, which can limit the number of people uh, required to pull off some of these tasks. But you have to keep into consideration if we have really poor weather, that's when we need all hands on deck and you need, you know, from 20 to 30 people to, to extricate one person. Um, and that can take half a day or more to do that. Do you see a similarity? And I know you've seen this 25% huge number of increase in calls, but is there a similarity to what you're seeing out there? Um, you know, it's a real mixed bag. I mean, this weekend we've had um, two people, you know, that were were pretty badly injured. Um, the first one was a, a cardiac event. The other was um, from something that shouldn't have happened. And it was a skier that was on Mount Seymour that, that was skiing down um, off a of first pump. And they actually skied into a, an aval- avalanche observation pit. So like a snow Ooh. pit that someone had dug. Um, to observe what the snowpack was doing and you know a real common practice is to fill those holes back in and and that didn't happen and because of that this this lady was quite badly injured because she skied into um, you know a significant hole right so that does so some of them are are unavoidable right but I'm sure there's a lot of those ones that you would like to maybe take off the list yeah, no, there for sure is. And and we see a lot of novices that are getting into kind of the North Shore backcountry. And, you know, the North Shore mountains are so accessible from the downtown core. And we have buses that are going up to all those mountains. And you can be remote really quickly. So, you know, we're really doing our best to push the education piece and um, and asking bystanders that are out there, other hikers, to be prepared and, and to help out. And we've really seen that a lot. Um, a lot of people are, are stopping, offering extra clothing, first aid equipment. So that's been really great. Mike, though, how does your team deal with the psychological aspects, the strain that must come from all of these call-outs that you get? Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge, that's for sure. But we're really trying to spread the workload out. Um, and, you know, on the mental health side of things, I mean, we're, we're, we're currently going through a resilience maintenance program um, with our members to to just try to make sure that we're checking in on everybody. And, you know, we've had some really tough calls this year that um, unfortunately, you know, in some of them, the person hasn't survived, but we have been able to bring them back to their family to provide closure. But those calls are, are really hard on our volunteers. So we're really doing our best to, to build resilience, um, to make sure we're checking in with peer support so it's, you know, I think the busier the, the teams are, the almost the closer they become because they're so engaged in doing what they're passionate about. So do you have any advice for people like moving forward? Do you think these numbers are going to stay high? I really do. I, I don't see it changing because, you know, the with people not being able to travel, um, they've really come to realize that we have an amazing uh, backyard here on the North Shore and, and throughout this province. And I think people are really taking advantage of that. And what we're seeing is there's so many people getting out on the well-known trails. We're getting people pushing further back into the more um, less-traveled terrain, which, again, it's less-traveled because it's it's more challenging terrain and it's more remote and has um, typically no cell signal as well. So, I, I don't think that's going to change. Any advice then for people who are headed out? 
Yeah, for sure. And it's it really comes down to preparation. Do the research on the hike that you're you're attempting. Make sure it's appropriate to your fitness level. Make sure you have adequate equipment with you. Keep in mind, I mean, yesterday was a great example. People were wearing shorts and T-shirts um, in the city. And while we were doing that rescue up on Mount Seymour, it was snowing. So people really need to, to make sure they're prepared for the current conditions at hand. And right now, we, we also have a lot of melt that's happening in the snowpack. So when you're crossing creeks, um, snow bridges are melting out from underneath. So you need to be very aware of that. And it's also very um, icy conditions when the, when the sun goes down because of the solar effect of the snow. I can imagine, yeah. Another another day today, I would imagine, like that, though, Mike, because it is going to be nice out there. So good luck. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for your time. That's Mike Danks, North Shore Rescue Team Leader, talking about the effect of the past year and the increase in the number of calls on search and rescue teams. It is going to be sunny today. It is a holiday for a lot of people. So if you are heading out, please be aware of Mike's warnings there and watch yourself. Take care out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Not a lot of people were very happy about seeing those pictures over the weekend of a couple of restaurants that were defying public health orders and staying open. One in Vancouver, in Kitsilano in particular, uh, even like chanted at health inspectors and told them to get out when health inspectors showed up there. Uh, police showed up there too. So why wasn't anything done? Why were they allowed to stay open? And what is going to happen to them? Let's talk about that now with Ian Tossinson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good morning, Ian. Good morning, Simi. Happy Monday Easter. Happy Monday Easter to you, too. I wish it was on better terms that we were talking about here, though, because this really was a terrible situation. This is so weird. And, you know, uh, we had talked to Rebecca last week, which is really has me perplexed about how we could get some aid for her, her small business. She doesn't have a patio and she doesn't do takeout and delivery. But there's a recovery grant and a technology grant that she was unaware of. And I said, you know what? We took one of our staff members and we started to work with her. And, you know, potentially she could have got maybe $40,000 to help her out. And she was quite pleasant. And the next thing I do, I see her in the news and I see, I see her going rogue with her restaurant. And I'm just going, whoa, um, that's not right. And so we put a statement out yesterday and basically saying, look, these people have to be you have to revoke a license, could be a liquor license. And by the way, Simi, um, for your listeners, they can go to the liquor cannabis licensing branch, and there's a section where you can make a complaint about a person that holds a liquor license if they feel so compelled to do this, and they will investigate. So that puts some pressure on. We just can't be doing that kind of stuff at a time when thousands of our businesses are hurting, but they're doing the right thing. And plus, as you've been reporting all morning, you know, these variants are a little mm-hmm. sketchy, a little out of control, and I don't know why it, we want to put anybody in harm's way. Did you hear from, like, the law-abiding restaurants, too? Because I would imagine their frustration is huge <laughs> when they see something like this. You know, we don't typically do press releases. We just sort of are part of the news community. And But yesterday, after watching this, we sort of thought, you know what, we have to do this. I had so many, on Easter Sunday... So much email from uh, restaurants in British Columbia saying, we stand with you, thank you very much, we needed this. We can't have one or two restaurants tarnishing a reputation. We work too hard for this. Uh, we know it's really hard for everybody, but we're almost getting to the end here at some point. We're within probably a couple months, or not, but a better, a better outcome. 
And what I also found, and I guess this is the world you live in, man, the hate meal that came in last night was just skating. I mean, and threatening, and we're going to get you, and... Then oh, you're part awful. of the conspiracy, and I just go, you know, oh, whatever. Boy. I know, and it, you know? it's frustrating because I guess you're getting both sides of it, too, because there's a lot of really rule-abiding people out there, too, who want this to be over with. So you go by the rules you want it to be over with, and then you see this happen. And the fact that they chanted at the health inspector, there's so much to be disappointed about with this, isn't there? Oh, there is. Um, and that's that's the whole thing here. We, we affect so many, you know, a couple hundred thousand people that uh, you know, are, are in that 20 to 40, 39 age bracket, we can have a real effect. And we are working very closely behind the scenes with the government to try to do a number of things to get this going quicker and uh, the resolution of this quicker. And so when we, when we say, you know, this shouldn't happen, we have to do this and we have to double down and just keep going the course, we're doing it so we can get out of this faster. We're doing this to, to not lose, and this really hurt me yesterday, is one or two restaurants can really hurt the confidence of our consumers right now by just being totally irresponsible because we've worked too hard over the year to keep that reputation intact. Have you, in the last 24 hours, so since all this happened, have you spoken to either of those restaurants? No. Um, I, and actually, I'm going to probably reach out to both of them and see if we can find some way of, you know, it, I, and I get, you know, I understand they're really frustrated. I know, I know that in, in Rebecca's case, it's really difficult for her. I think she, she told me she's a mother of four kids under 10. Yeah, yeah. We can help her. There's some stuff the government's doing that can help her. And I'd rather us try to find that pathway as opposed to, I'm going to open up Tuesday when I reload my food here and away we go again. It's just, it's not going to end well. I mean, right. something is, she's going to lose her business or, or something. So, yeah, I'm going to reach out to both of them. I think... The other chap, uh, Federico, he has now gone to uh, patio-only dining, which is great, but he initially defied the order, but I think now he's sort of seen that's not in his best interest. So if Corduroy Restaurant says they're going to reopen on Tuesday, uh, would you expect that that's not going to last very long? There's already a full closure order. What would you tell officials to do at this point? Well, I asked my kids that last night. I said, well, just, just stand outside and just give tickets to everybody that goes in and out. $2,300, 20, you just stand there for as long as you, you can and just give out tickets, and eventually the public will get bored. I, know, I, I think that the, the police probably don't want to be on TV, you know, arresting a, a business owner. I think that's, you know, what is that sending? But I would, I would go after the people that are going there saying you should know better. The same people that, you know, when you and I or anybody goes to a restaurant, if you stand up, you put your mask on and you sit down, take it off, and that's it. That there's no one wearing masks in that place. I mean, it was just a complete, you know, disregard. So I would go after the uh, the patrons because obviously they're not buying into, you know, our public safety standards. And I think she should have her liquor license revoked. See, um, all right, she has a liquor license. And without the liquor license, it's going to be pretty tough for her to, well, she won't be able to purchase liquor because she has to show her license. And I think people will eventually get bored and move on. Well, we'll see what happens. Ian, thanks so yeah. much for your time this morning. Best of luck. That's Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Yank the liquor license. I'm all on board for that. What do you think of the idea of having police stand outside there and just ticket every person who's going to go into that establishment and say, you know, you're breaking the rules. So here's you're going to get a ticket and you're going to get a ticket and you're going to get a ticket. Would you support that idea? This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, lots of anecdotal stories about this over the weekend that even though we're not supposed to be traveling, so many people saying, I don't know, I see people on the roads, people are on the ferries, people are heading to small towns. So we thought, let's find out exactly what was going on there. In regular times, Tofino would be, of course, a huge destination for people. So what was going on there this past weekend? Joining us now is Dan Law, District of Tofino Mayor. Good morning and thank you for being with us. Hi, Simi. So, Great to be here. Well, how was the weekend then? Was it busy in your town? Well, it was. It was obviously busier than uh, the normal, like busier than last week. But uh, but certainly uh, a lot slower than it would have been any in a normal year. Right, but you did notice more people. Yeah, there was there was definitely visitors here from uh, from off island and and even out of province for sure. And so, was there chatter about that in the community? You know, there was online as usual. There's always uh, there's always lots of chatter online. But most of the people in town that I've talked to, most of the business owners said uh, said it was it was it was reasonable and, and quiet in their minds. And and people that did come, for the most part, uh, were very very aware of protocols and policies and and did social distancing and, and all the COVID uh, precautions. So that was great to see. Do you think if restaurants had been open, had been allowing indoor dining, it might have been a different situation? I think so. Yeah, for sure. I think I think the province's move to to shut indoor dining did have a significant effect on on visitation in Tofino. Uh, definitely. So, what has the COVID nineteen situation been like recently in Tofino? Are there cases? What's been happening there? You know, there's been sporadic cases uh, in Tofino. We did have a few businesses shut down periodically over the winter. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been, it's been very well controlled. Viha has been, uh, has been great and the businesses have been very compliant and proactive in, uh, in following all the policies and procedures. So, so I, I got to say our business community has done a great job and our, and our community as a whole is very aware that we are, uh, that we are, you know, <laughs> A little more at risk. We're remote. We have few services, and we have a very tight community, uh, very small, tight community. So people are very aware, for the most part, and and following procedures and protocols and and policies. So pretty well, yeah, pretty well. So you've seen some examples, <laughs> then, obviously, of people not. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. There, there's certainly you know I think everywhere there's people that aren't, uh, which is. Which is tough, but uh, I think that's what we can expect. We can't expect 100% compliance uh, from any any population. You talked about the remoteness of your community. How has that um, been dealt with in terms of the vaccination situation? Well, you know that's a, that's great. We we're very pleased that the province has has uh, has started the whole community vaccination approach for remote communities like ours uh, across the province. So you know, on the coast here, we've had um, we've had First Nations communities up and down the coast. They've been vaccinated. Uh, some of them with the two vaccines already. Most of them with just one. And now, Yuku and Tofino are scheduled to start the whole community vaccination on the twelfth, I believe. And and people have been uh, have been setting up their appointments and getting very excited to to get their first vaccine. And so, so why does Tofino fall into that category? Then, have there been outbreaks there? Have there been problems? Uh, there has been there has been a few outbreaks. I think it has to do with the distance from uh, services, like a major hospital. I mean, Tofino is very far away from uh, from our, our nearest hospital, Port Alberni, a major hospital. 
that can deal with a, a COVID a COVID case, uh, you know, a severe COVID case. And uh, we only have two ambulances here. So if we have an outbreak and we have to transport people with COVID, with serious disease out of our community, we can very quickly be be um, uh, out of services completely. Right. You so know what I mean? Like, when does that process start? Well, they've been taking, they opened the uh, phone lines for, for bookings uh, this uh, this past week. And so the vaccination st- should start on the 12th. Okay, so well, that, that'll be a relief for a lot of businesses out there. But obviously, the message is still to follow the rules, right? Like, how do you get that message out there to people? Yeah, well, that's, uh, well, we've been, uh, I mean, we've been on the news and, you know, Instagram, Facebook, social media, uh, websites, stuff like that, uh, uh, letting people know to follow the provincial orders and recommendations. Is that the message that you still want to put out there for people? Absolutely. Yeah. No, we're we're holding the line with the province. Uh, stay local, avoid non-essential travel, and follow all the policies and procedures. And uh, and especially, you know, it's especially don't uh, get together with groups outside of your bubble. I think that's where most of the cases are are coming from. Certainly across the province, as far as I'm aware. Well, we'll see what happens, uh, Mayor Law. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Thanks a lot. And good well, have luck. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That's Dan Law, the District of Tofino Mayor, talking about the fact that we're not, you know, we're not supposed to travel. We weren't supposed to over the weekend, but there were all these anecdotal reports, and I saw a ton of chatter about this on social media, people saying, you know, the road to Tofino has got all these cars on it, that it was busier, and you heard the mayor say that, Yes, it was busier than usual, certainly not as busy as a typical long weekend would be in Tofino, but it was busier than usual there, so they did get people. What helped, though, was the lack of indoor dining, so that did keep people kind of out of restaurants and limited to where they could go and what they could do, but still too many people traveling out there. You knew something was going on there when you had Health Minister Adrian Dix on the weekend on social media just telling people to please obey the rules, but at that point... I don't know, putting it out on social media, is that going to do anything? No, you need to crack down on people to send a message. This is Mornings with Simi. So there's a lot of concern about there out there about our increasing COVID numbers. What does that mean for our hospitals, though? What are doctors and nurses and frontline healthcare workers seeing there? Well, we're going to get a little help on that now. Joining us is Dr. Gerald DeRosa, head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you very much for having me today. Now, what are you seeing at the hospital? So we are definitely seeing the number of hospitalized patients increase over the past few weeks. Um, Our critical care units are getting quite full across the region. Um, And some of the patients are actually even spilling over into other areas of the hospital. Um, When we run out of critical care capacity, uh, then patients either have to stay in the emergency department or they um, sometimes go to what's called the post-anesthesia recovery room. Uh, that obviously then has impacts on things like uh, surgery, um, nursing care, other patients coming to the emergency department. So it's uh, it's getting quite busy. Um, I've had some of my critical care colleagues say that uh, it's the busiest that they've felt in uh, in 15 years. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Does it compare to at any point during the pandemic? 
I think it's it's fairly comparable to that first wave initially. We also were feeling quite busy, um, and the critical care units and then the medical wards had a lot of uh, COVID patients. Um, I know from talking to my colleagues at uh, Vancouver General um, and St. Paul's as well, um, which are kind of the main, a lot of the main COVID sites, um, that they're feeling uh, a lot of pressure. Uh, they must be because I, you know, Dr. DeRosa, I, I can't remember the last time I heard doctors actually speaking out publicly about what was seeing in hospitals. Do you think, it, it, do you, are you doing that to raise the level of concern for people? Definitely. Um, you know, I, I think that it, it's hard for people to see what's going on inside the hospital. And I think our goal here is just to educate and maybe bring it to people's attention. Uh, I believe that hopefully the more people that say it and if they hear it from frontline physicians, that, you know, if we can convince even a few people to just uh, stick with the rules and, and try not to, um, you know, hang on for a little longer, get vaccinated, the hope is that uh, we can kind of bend the curve back down and uh, get on top of this. Would you say, like, what would you think is the age of the people who you're seeing in hospital right now? I think that's the other thing that's concerning. You know, with the first wave, it generally was older individuals who were hospitalized. And even if younger individuals got COVID, they didn't seem to come to the hospital that often. What we're seeing now is we're actually seeing uh, younger uh, people getting hospitalized with COVID. Um, I I presume part of that is that some of the elderly population has now been vaccinated at least once, if not twice, sometimes if they were in nursing homes. Um, but, uh, but we're seeing, you know, 30 year olds, um, being transferred to our critical care unit from other hospitals in in the province. And they're really sick. Um, just to give people a sense, uh, in the critical care unit, there's a lot of things you can do. You know, you can give blood pressure support medications. You could put people on mechanical ventilation and intubate them. There is a specific therapy called ECMO, which is extracorporeal. Uh, membrane oxygenation, which we reserve for kind of the sickest of the sick. It's only done in three hospitals in the lower mainland. So it's only done at Royal Columbia and St. Paul's and Vancouver General. And we've had young people uh, being urgently transferred to one of those three ICUs to start them on ECMO. Um, And so, you know, um, I think it's just important uh, that we understand with these new variants um, that it seems like younger, healthy previously healthy people can get very sick. That is scary when you put it that way, right? Because I think people still have mm-hmm. this impression that if they're younger, they might get it, but it, it'll just be like a flu and they'll be, they'll get over it. Yeah. I think that is, uh, that is unfortunately the impression based on the experience we had in the first wave, which was, you know, potentially fairly true. We did have some younger individuals, but it was rarer, I would say. And even then it was probably maybe in their forties, 50s, um, but we are definitely 100% seeing um, people in their 20s to 40s now that are getting hospitalized that feel quite unwell. Uh, are you worried? I'm worried. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm worried because when the numbers go up, it creates a lot of stress on the system. Um, and I think what we have to realize is that um, the stress is not only on the patients who get COVID, the stress is on the system itself. Um, and, and, you know, in the first wave, when we had that much stress, we had to do other things like 
shut down surgeries, delay testing uh, for non-COVID patients to take care of the uh, of the volume of sick patients. And, uh, you know, it worries me when we do those sort of things. Uh, people don't stop coming to the hospital because they're concerned about getting COVID when they should come to the hospital. And so there are these kind of knockoff effects that, that you see as well. But um, I'm also worried just because, you know, seeing people get so sick and some of them uh, die is, is, is really distressing for all of us. I can imagine. Well, listen, Dr. DeRosa, thank you for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you very much. And best of luck. That is Dr. Gerald DeRosa, head of medicine at Royal Columbian Hospital, where he said, yeah, they are seeing 30-year-olds in intensive care receiving full critical care support, things that normally they reserve just for the sickest of the sick. And they are seeing younger people show up with COVID-19 leading to these situations. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it feels like the news gets more and more devastating every day for the Vancouver Canucks. The team now reporting, what, 16 cases of COVID-19, and that includes cases of the P1 variant that caused so much concern. What is going on right now with the team? For more on this, we're joined by Thomas Trance, who's a Vancouver Canucks writer for The Athletic. Good morning, Thomas. Hi, Simi. Good morning to you as well. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. What is the latest on this? What do we know at this point? Yeah, the so we're up to 16 players on the COVID protocol formally, but there's an additional two on the taxi squad plus three coaches unnamed. And Darren Drager of TSN is reporting that another player has tested positive in the Sunday round of testing. So that would bring us up to 22. You know, we're, we're at the point where the Canucks have now sustained or, or suffered the worst COVID outbreak in the NHL this season. And there's a variety of, of indicators that this is, in fact, uh, the P1 variant. Although, you know, there, there's been, it's been widely reported that that's confirmed. My understanding is that it's an operating assumption at the moment and that hard confirmation is, is still waiting. But when you consider that forward Jace Howerluck, for example, has been reinfected, when you consider that some of these athletes in their mid-20s are, in fact, sick, uh, and when you consider the rate of transmissibility within the team environment, despite rigid protocols in place, despite daily testing, despite a huge PPE budget in that workplace, you know, there's a variety of indicators that this outbreak is behaving the way we'd expect the P1 to. Yeah. And you mentioned that a couple of them are sick. That's what I've heard as well. Is it like we're talking can't get out of bed sick? Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's amazing how little we still know about some aspects of this virus, considering the way that it's dominated our lives for the last 13 months. Uh, One thing, however, that we do know is that symptomatic experience varies wildly. And my understanding is that is the case here. You know, there, there are, there's certainly as a group, and, and this is a really important point, I think, to drive home, like as a group, this is a cross section of the youngest and fittest in our community. And as a group, they are sick for sure. But of course there is, also asymptomatic cases within the Canucks camp. And my understanding of it is that to this point anyway, and hopefully this continues, you know, club medical staff isn't sounding the alarm of, uh, you know, any imminent hospitalizations. Hopefully that remains the case. But yeah, yeah, I mean, this is something to be taken very seriously considering 
some of the symptomatic experiences that even professional athletes, you know, in yeah. world-class shape are dealing with. Yeah, fingers crossed on that one that that doesn't happen. Thomas, what about at the NHL level then? How worried are they about this? Well, I, I think extremely worried, especially with the way that this variant appears to have torn through NHL protocols, which are designed to prevent, you know, transmission within the team environment to the fullest extent possible. Now, the NHL has dealt with four outbreaks this season that got really significant, maybe maybe five if you include the Philadelphia Flyers, who at one point had seven players on the, on the COVID protocol list. So, you know, it's not just the variant that has seeped into NHL training environments to this point in the, in the campaign, but this is the largest outbreak to this point, and certainly with the way that the NHL has reacted in general to variant infections. You know, you look at the case of the Montreal Canadiens, which was just about eight days before the Canucks received their first positive. And there was a confirmed variant case, one player, and and they were fortunate that it was contained, despite, you know, a run of sort of detection and continued team involvement that didn't exactly mirror the Canucks. The Canucks sort of held two one-ice sessions where the Montreal Canadiens only held one, but that one was completely contained and, and the Vancouver one, of course, was not at all. And so, you know, that has to be a significant concern for the league in that, you know, how do you design a process and protocols around the increased transmissibility that this variant, which appears to be of concern, I mean, is of mm-hmm. concern, but is especially of concern for teams in the North Division. Um, you know, how do you sort of rejig protocols to prevent this from happening again to one of the other Canadian teams? Right. I mean, I know hockey is absolutely secondary here in terms of the games played, but how much of the season is is left? And can what what are they going to do about the Canucks? It's going to be impractical, I think. Uh, and this is me editorializing, it is going to be impractical for the Canucks to get 19 more games in this season. When you consider that, you know, we're, we're, we still haven't, it's been a week now since the Canucks had a round of testing that produced uniform negatives, right? So they continue to add cases. It's difficult to see how this team can't go through at least another full incubation period, right? Another 14 days before gathering together again. Uh, presumably they need a couple of days of practice at least Uh, to prepare for a game. And while you wouldn't expect them to come back necessarily with the full roster that they had prior to this shutdown, you know, they need to be able to ice something that's a credible enough NHL lineup, not not just sort of filled with call-ups to, you know, protect the integrity of the competition as it were. So, you know, (laughs) by the time you get to two weeks from now, we're at, what, April 18th? Yeah. Uh, say, you know, April 18th to 20th to play again. And the season is supposed to end on the 11th, although the NHL has, uh, of May, and the NHL has built in a buffer week that sort of goes to the 14th of May. So you'd be looking at playing 19 games in 24 days. I mean, that, that's just not... Yeah, no. That's not possible, yeah. especially with a team that has just had a majority of players ill or infected. So... You know, uh, it seems to me that at some point the league's going to have to face some really tough choices and then determine sort of final season standings based off of point percentage. To this point, the NHL publicly is 
insisting that they're going to do everything possible, uh, move heaven and earth to get the full 56 games in. I just think when you look at the delay that the league would be looking at as a result of doing that, particularly to the start of the Stanley Cup playoffs in Canada, uh, you know, I, I do think that some tough choices are going to be made and that ultimately it's unlikely, just just based on my view, that the, right. that the Canucks finish a 56-game season as intended. Uh, are there a lot of call-ups right now? Do they have, my understanding was they had a bunch of players they had called up and they were undergoing quarantine? Yeah, so the, the Canucks loaned because originally they were dealing with a 14-day quarantine and the Utica Comets, their American League affiliate, are based in the United States. Uh, and thus two weeks away from being used as reinforcements. The Canucks loaned a couple of players to uh, AHL teams based in Canada, in Laval and Manitoba. Um, they've called up two players who were loaned in those circumstances, but they ha- they're going to wait, uh, I think, a little bit longer until they get further guidance from the league on precisely what their schedule looks like on the other side of this before going down to the Utica Comets and calling up players from their American League team. You know, the thing that's going to be difficult, too, is there's there's still a salary cap that governs NHL play and and governs the Canucks even as they go through through this. Uh, You know, players that go on the COVID protocol remain on the cap in terms of salary. Um, And I don't want to get too technical and, and confuse your listeners, but suffice it to say that the Canucks are only able to fill out their roster with players who have a salary under a million dollars at a certain level. Right. And some of, you know, one of their highest profile players in the American league, for example, is, is well higher than that. So he wouldn't even be an option necessarily. And he's by far the most sort of credible NHL experienced, like blooded option for them. Uh, so, you know, it's just going to get tricky and, and that's also not to, Note, but but we should note that the Utica Comets haven't played in, in at least ten days. I think oh, it was er, early um, or sort of sort of late March because of a COVID outbreak on that end as well. So uh, messy all around. Very, yeah, it, it is a very messy situation, and resuming play is going to be extraordinarily complicated for the club. Not to mention navigating the NHL trade deadline, which is only a week away. All right. Oh, more to come. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Appreciate that. That's Thomas Dranst, a Vancouver Connects writer for The Athletic. Check out theathletic.com. Great website.